The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station. Well, Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and so, as always, it is time to talk about science. And also, as always, you can find me during the week at my Facebook page, which is Evidence-Based Radio. And um, so, yeah, I've had a bit of a hectic couple of weeks, as you might have noticed. Last week was a repeat. I'm sorry about that. Um, and so I haven't necessarily been keeping up as great with the Facebook either, but I did actually post several things today. So, um, if you're on Facebook or if you're interested in science shows or science stories, I should say, you can find me there. Um, and again, one of the great things that I post there are visual things, including, of course, pictures of cute animals. In fact, I think uh, one of them that I posted today is a rare photo of a um, giraffe and a uh, calf that are both white. They have no pigment. And uh, so, yeah, it's a really interesting photo. So I definitely would suggest uh, heading over there at some point. Now, again, I want to start off with extending my condolences uh, to those who have been affected by the myriad hurricanes and earthquakes that seem to be happening uh, lately. And so, obviously, as you've probably heard from a thousand other people, but I just want to reinforce this, if you can, please help out by donating to established relief funds. Make sure that you are... Uh, definitely picking very well-known relief funds that you know are going to be using that money directly to help people out there. And um, one of the things I'm planning on doing is putting a reminder in my calendar uh, to remind me to donate in about six months from now, um, because that's going to be a huge issue. Uh, A lot of people will have moved on by then, thinking about the next tragedy, but the people who are dealing with these tragedies right now, they're still going to need help in six months. They may still need help in a year. It may be more than that. Um, And so that's just a tip that I do if you're interested in actually um, helping people, which, you know, if you don't have the means to do that, it's completely fine. Um, And so, yeah. And of course, one of the other things I always like to remind people is that the best gift that you can give is either money or time. Um, For instance, if you're a Spanish speaking person, there's probably some work you could do with translations, things like that, um, for the devastations that have happened in the Americas. Um, And so canned goods, clothes, and other things that people think will be helpful are actually often referred to as a second disaster because the ability to make those things useful would take away from basic life-saving activities. And so they often simply end up in warehouses rotting away. Um, So again, unless you specifically know someone who needs specific goods, Uh, Money is better. Even a few dollars can help. Um, So, yeah. And again, (sighs) I unfortunately don't think this is going to be the end of it either. Um, This 
hurricane season is already off to such a devastating start and it's not over yet. And so between the different weather patterns and the fact that the ocean is warming, it's just going to keep happening and we are going to keep getting worse storms. And then, of course, the earthquakes. Um, the thing about earthquakes is that they're clearly not related to global warming necessarily, but one earthquake can actually help cause another earthquake. So if part of a um, fault slips or, um, you know, has a rupture, it can change the pressure differential and the uh, physics in another part of the fault. And so there's actually some speculation that they haven't confirmed yet that the two um, earthquakes in Mexico might actually have been somehow connected to one another. And so that's unfortunately a thing that can also happen. But anyways, let's let's move on to our regularly scheduled sciency program. And so I did want to take a second to weigh in on last week's big news in astronomy, which is, of course, the uh, final moments of the Cassini uh, spacecraft, the space probe. And so I was really sorry to have missed it, um, but I really um, was unavailable last Friday. And uh, so Cassini had been doing an amazing job for years. It's been a complete success. It's another one of those projects from NASA um, and also the European Space Agency that have far outlasted their original mission. And so it had sent back amazing pictures, tons of data about Saturn and its moons. It even... um, confirmed some ideas about, for instance, how Saturn's rings were formed and how they are continuing to move and some of them are still possibly forming new moons. And so NASA received its last bundle of data from Cassini at about 7.55 a.m. Eastern Standard Time last Friday. And so it was a bittersweet moment for NASA's system engineer, Molly Bittner, who noted that, I remember the first time I came into JPL in the middle of the night. We have to send commands any time of the day. I've had this thing that I've been communicating with on Saturn for four years. I can send up commands to it, hear how it's doing through data, and after Friday... The only way I'll be able to talk to the spacecraft is through memories and pictures. That's kind of sad. However, others do have a slightly more sanguine view. It's emotional, but I don't feel sad because this is the most beautiful end of a mission that we could have imagined, said Athena Christenis, an international co-investigator for Cassini's composite infrared spectrometer. And so Cassini's mission has been a triumph of international cooperation in a way that few other missions have achieved. Cassini has been an amazing success in blowing past geopolitical barriers, says Alexander Hayes, assistant professor of astronomy at Cornell University and member of the Cassini team. There's nothing else on the books right now that has anywhere near that level of collaboration across political boundaries. So do join me in a belated goodbye to this wonderful workhorse explorer of our solar system. Okay, 
So now let us move on and talk about things from uh, this week and from recently that I wanted to bring to your attention. Now, remember, if you want to suggest topics, if you want to comment, um, if you have a question that you want me to research and answer, uh, you can always email me at evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. Or you can, again, go to the Facebook page. And so, yeah, if you have any interest in knowing about something specific, please let me know. But for tonight, the first thing I want to talk about is dinosaur, or sorry, frog-eating dinosaurs. No, wait, dinosaur-eating frogs. <laughs> I was right the first time. Sorry about that. Uh, dinosaur-eating frogs. Now, you may have heard of this. Uh, it's been in the news the last day or so. Um and so these giant prehistoric frogs uh, that were have its great name, uh, Bezel Bufo, uh, they are clearly very awesome. Um, but I do need to uh, say right from off the bat that there isn't any actual evidence that they did actually eat dinosaurs. Merely that from the way that they have extrapolated the data, they could have. And so basically the idea is that they would have had the amount of force in their bite to actually be able to snack on small dinosaurs. But we haven't found a skeleton that has a dinosaur inside of its stomach or anything like that. So as cool as this is, and I do still want to talk about it, I just want to be clear that you know, a, a lot of stories kind of run with the idea that they totally did it, but they didn't. As far as we know, we just know that they could have and they might have. And so, yeah, this study was uh, published recently in the journal Scientific Reports by scientists from the University of Adelaide, Cal State Polytechnic Pomona, UC Riverside and University College London. And so what they did was they compared the bite force of living small horned frogs to extrapolate a potential bite force for the Biesel Bufo, which lived 68 million years ago in what is now Madagascar. And so according to a press release, the team, quote, found that small horned frogs with head width of about 4.5 centimeters, it's about 1.8 inches, can bite with a force of 30 newtons, or about 3 kilograms, or 6.6 .6 pounds. And so these small frogs of the genus Ceratophorus, commonly referred to as Pac-Man frogs, uh, because they have a rounded profile and huge mouths, um, they have a bite that is more similar to that of mammals than of other amphibians who tend to have weaker jaws. Um, so if you think of like a gecko or something like that, they don't really have a big bite force. Uh, a lot of what they're doing is they're using their sticky tongues. Unlike the vast majority of frogs, which have weak jaws and typically consume small prey, horned frogs ambush animals as large as themselves, including other frogs, snakes, and rodents, and their powerful jaws play a critical role in grabbing and subduing the prey, notes Mark Jones, researcher at the University of Adelaide's School of Biological Sciences and honorary researcher at the South Australian Museum. The researchers used a custom-made instrument called a force transducer, which consisted of two leather plates, uh, 
leather-covered plates that allowed the force applied between them to be measured as the animal bit down. A scaling experiment comparing bite force with head and body size calculated that large horned frogs that are found in the tropical and subtropical moist lowland forests of South America with a head width of up to 10 centimeters or 3.9 inches would have a bite force of almost 500 newtons, the researchers noted. This is comparable to reptiles and animals with a similar head size. And so what they did was that using this same method, they then calculated that the Biesel Bufo, which would have ended up having a bite force of around 2,200 newtons. And for comparison, that amount of bite force is comparable to wolves and female tigers. So pretty serious there. At this bite force, Biezo Bufo would have been capable of subduing the small and juvenile dinosaurs that shared its environment, says Jones. This is the first time bite force has been measured in a frog, says Christopher Lappin, professor of biological sciences at California State Polytechnic Pomona. And speaking from experience, horned frogs can have have quite an impressive bite and they tend not to let go the bite of a large Biesel Bufo would have been remarkable definitely not something I would want to experience firsthand. <laughs> now again this is a lot of guesstimation and extrapolation it's all based on really solid science but we can't say for certain that there were these giant frogs out there eating dinosaurs um, but it is definitely cool to think about, you know, these kind of crazy Pac-Man frogs out there eating uh, dinosaurs because it just seems like such an odd uh, reversal. And um, it's a great way to show how we actually can use living animals to make educated inferences about extinct animals. And so that's really cool. And, uh, you know, it doesn't always work because there's plenty of extinct animals that don't really have any uh, living relatives or anything living that is like them. But for things like ancient frogs, we have modern frogs that we can compare them to. And that's really cool. Okay. And so the next thing I want to talk about uh, moves us back into space and um, this was from a few weeks ago, but I really wanted to uh, eventually talk about it. And it wasn't terribly time sensitive. <laughs> so uh, Korean royal astronomers noted on March 11th, 1437, that a new bright star had appeared in the constellation Scorpius. Examining the records left by these ancient scholars, modern astronomers were able to tell that they were witnessing a classic nova explosion. The only problem was they couldn't find a binary system in that area that would account for the nova. Now, novas are caused by white dwarfs, which consume sun-like stars. Once the white dwarf has consumed enough hydrogen, which they sort of siphon off of those sun-like stars. And after around 100,000 years or so, the white dwarf becomes critical and explodes into a nova. And so when that happens, the hydrogen envelope that had been sort of close around the core of the star 
uh, blows off in a spectacular burst of light that can be up to 300,000 times brighter than the sun. And that can last in the sky anywhere from a few days to a few months. And so this bright light is what those ancient Korean and uh, Asian astronomers would have observed. Now, several researchers have spent years trying to pinpoint the origin of this nova, uh, especially Dr. Michael Shara, a curator in the American Museum of Natural History's Department of Astrophysics, along with Dr. Richard Stevenson of Durham University and Dr. Mike Bode of Liverpool, uh, Liverpool John Moores University. And so they recently expanded their search and found the culprit. They confirmed their quarry with a more recent historical reference, a photographic plate taken at the Harvard Observatory Station in Peru back in 1923. This is the first nova that's ever been recorded with certainty based on the Chinese, Korean, and Japanese records of almost 2,500 years, Dr. Shara said. With the 1923 plate, we could figure out how much the star had moved in the centuries in the centuries since the photo was taken. We then traced it back six centuries, and bingo, there it was, right at the center of our shell. That's the clock. That's what convinced us that it had to be right. The star is actually now a dwarf nova, and therefore this research has actually also helped to uh, let the researchers discover that what have been referred to as cataclysmic binaries, novae, novae-like variables, and dwarf novae are not separate entities, but are actually the same type of system. And so this is really cool. They used to think that they were different uh, kinds of novae, but it turns out that they're all sort of on a spectrum in the same type of system. After an eruption, a nova becomes nova-like, then a dwarf nova, and then after a possible hibernation comes back to being nova-like, and then a nova, and does it over and over again, up to a hundred thousand times over billions of years, the scientists explained. In the same way that an egg a caterpillar, a pupa, and a butterfly are all life stages of the same organism. We now have strong support for the idea that these binaries are all the same thing seen in different phases of their, life, of their lives, Dr. Shara added. The real challenge in understanding the evolution of these systems is that unlike watching the egg transform into the eventual butterfly, which can happen in just a month, the life cycle of a nova is hundreds of thousands of years. We simply haven't been around long enough to see a single complete cycle. The breakthrough was being able to reconcile the 580-year-old Korean recording of this event to the dwarf nova and nova shell that we see in the sky today. So that's very cool. <laughs> um, you know, this is sort of, this is groundbreaking science happening because some amazing astronomers, uh, you know, 500 plus years ago, decided to record their observations of the sun and of the stars, I should say. And so, yeah. And of course, they would have been able to see the sky a lot better than we do because they would have had a lot less 
uh, light pollution, but that's okay. All right. So let us now switch gears. And um, I don't, I feel like I've been talking about science a lot lately. I guess I have talked about debunking some. I'm sure I, I remember talking about Gwyneth Paltrow recently, which is always, you know, something to talk about in the realm of debunking. But I really wanted to talk about this particular uh, survey because you're probably going to see things about it because it kind of, it's one of those surveys where it really hits that sweet spot for people of what they want to believe, uh, given some of the narratives that are out there right now. And so I want to talk about how it is not as it seems. And so um, Lois Beckett, a writer at The Guardian, uh, had this article and um, was able to sort of break down what was going on here. And then I looked at uh, some of the uh, information about this survey. And yeah, it's pretty bad. And so basically, it's a new survey that purports to show that nearly 20% of American college students believe it's okay to use violence to silence offensive speech. Now, we can talk whether or not uh, we actually want to uh, say yay or nay to that idea in an abstract, but this is the kind of survey that is gold for news outlets, and especially in conservative news outlets. Uh, but it was even retweeted by the likes of Jake Tapper, who uh, definitely should know better. And of course, why? Well, for instance, the originator of the survey is not actually a social scientist at all. He is actually an electrical engineer. He just happens to have gotten funding for this survey, uh, which, you know, he's not really qualified to do, also by the Koch brothers. Um, and I assume that you are familiar with these fine gentlemen who are not so fine, um, who are very interested in making the world more conservative and easier for uh, the 1%. And so, yeah, lots of red flags already. And so the survey by John Villasenor at UCLA uh, did not have a properly designed protocol at all. Instead of having a random sampling of college students from around the country, the survey instead included results from an opt-in online panel of people who self-identified as college students. If it's not a probability sample, it's not a sample of anyone. It's just 1,500 college students who happen to respond, says Cliff Cliff Zukin, a past president of the American Association of Public Opinion Polling, which sets ethical and transparency standards for polls. He called the survey, quote, junk science and insists it should never have appeared in the press. Villa Senor said his survey had been inspired by the, quote, increased trend toward censorship on college campuses in recent years. Which included, which included both outright censorship and quote-unquote self-censorship. Now, sure, there has been talk about that, but making an unscientific poll about it isn't helping anything. And of course, one of the other big red flags is that he has not published the survey in a peer-reviewed journal. Instead, he released some of the preliminary results 
on the uh, web via the Brookings Institute, which should have also known better. He says, the timeliness of the topic, I believe it is important to get some of the key results out into the public sphere immediately. Now, one of the other big things that he did was that he included a margin of error for error for his survey, uh, despite the fact that it isn't a random survey. And so the actual poll people uh, were pointing out that by including a margin of error, the author appears to be, quote, trying to overstate the quality of his survey, unquote, uh, said Chris Jackson, the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs, a public opinion firm. And so, yeah, more red flags. The poll was also conducted just days after the events in Charlottesville, North Carolina, where, of course, uh, Heather Heyer was killed by a neo-Nazi extremist. If someone asks you that two days after Charlottesville, who do you think of immediately? You think of neo-Nazis, Jackson said. Now, Villasenor, for his part, insists that the timing was merely coincidental. Now, one of the other big uh, things here that is a red flag is that among the questions he asked was if students, quote, preferred, preferred, quote, open learning environment where students are exposed to all types of speech and viewpoints, even if it means allowing speech that is offensive or biased against certain groups of people, or, quote, a positive learning environment for all students by prohibiting certain speech or expression of viewpoints that are offensive or biased against certain groups of people. Now, according to Villa Senor, 53% suggested that they preferred the latter rather than the former, thus suggesting that they were, in some respect, anti-free speech. However, a 2016 Gallup poll of more than 3,000 carefully chosen college students responded to the same question with overwhelmingly supporting an open learning environment at 78%. And so, well, some changes in the political landscape may have happened in the last year, it seems unreasonable to suggest that such a large flip in attitudes could occur so quickly. And so I think that the overwhelming amount of red flags attached to this study mean um, that I would have to agree that it's basically junk science and uh, no one should take it seriously. And of course, part of the reason that I was intrigued by this was that I was on Facebook earlier today and one of the things it suggested to me and I said, what the heck, uh, was that there was a poll for the uh, what is apparently the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. And now, clearly, this isn't a scientific study either, uh, but what I was fascinated by was how much of it was what's called a push poll. And, you know, both sides do this, obviously. This was a Democratic uh, poll, quote unquote. And, um, and so a push poll is where the questions are carefully crafted to elicit a certain answer or not so craft carefully crafted in some cases. Some cases, it's just really blatant. Um, so, for instance, the survey asked 
Quote, Republicans have been incredibly advantaged by the gerrymandering maps they put in place in 2010. Do you believe gerrymandering has contributed to Republican control of the House of Representatives? <laughs> um, y- yes. <laughs> and so um, even more blatantly, after asking if you knew what the results of the 2012 election for the House were and noting that more people had voted for Democrats than Republicans overall, they followed up with, quote, in fact, because of gerrymandering, Republicans won 33 more seats than Democrats despite winning fewer votes. Do you believe that is acceptable? And I said 33 in that way because they placed three exclamation points in a parenthetical after that 33 in the question. (laughs) And now clearly I'm not suggesting this, uh, you know, internet, uh, hopefully very much understood to be informal survey that is completely non-scientific compares on a one-to-one basis with that of Villa Senor. Um, you know, it's clearly, I feel, more of a marketing tool than a real survey to get you interested in the idea of supporting, you know, these idea, this, you know, uh, group who wants to get rid of gerrymandering, which is a great thing. But um, one of the things I really wanted to point out was the fact that it shows how you need to have a healthy dose of skepticism for any poll. Um, you know, I definitely think that when polls come out, I like to go and actually find the poll itself and ask and read what was actually asked. Um, you know, I mean, if it's not something that I'm terribly concerned about being controversial, I might just look at the sort of, um, you know, basic articles about it. But if it's something that I think is important, I like to actually look and see what people were actually asked because you can sometimes tell like, oh, well, of course people said that because of the way that the question was phrased was so blatantly suggesting an answer without, you know, just specifically saying you should say yes to this. Um, And so there's definitely that element sometimes in polls. So you do definitely have to be careful to watch out for that sort of thing. Okay. Let us take a moment to do some PSAs and some uh, show promos as we are required to do. And we will come back and talk about one more bit of debunking and then some funner stuff after that. Okay, so hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. 
outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. And we are back. And I... Do you want to just take a second? Um, I'm starting since it's winter now. Okay, it's not really winter, <laughs> but um, it is coming into flu season. So you should try and get your flu vaccine in um, preferably before October, but as soon as you can. Um, I haven't gotten mine yet because I usually get one through work and um, they haven't yet sent them out. But as soon as I get that email, I'm immediately going to go and uh, set up an appointment. And though I do want to talk about something that has been in the news recently, and I haven't had time um, to look at it completely, so I will try and talk about it next week. But there is some new concern about women who are pregnant uh, getting the flu vaccine. So I would suggest that if you're pregnant at the moment, uh, you might want to hold off. Um, like I said, I will have more information next week. 
And of course, this is coming directly from the CDC because the uh, most important thing that they want to do is to have people be safe when they get vaccines, uh, regardless of what some people might say is to the contrary. They are the ones who are sounding this alarm and are out there telling people uh, that they might want to uh, wait and see for a moment. So yeah. Um, but if you are otherwise not pregnant, you should definitely be getting out there and getting your flu shot. It is very, very important. You may never get the flu. You may have never had the flu ever, but it still helps. It helps people who can't get a shot. It helps so much for for as many people as can get it to get it. Um, and again, the flu is not just a cold. It can be very much deadly. Uh, you can die from the flu. You can die from pneumonia brought on by a flu. Um, and so, yeah, definitely go and get your flu shot. Do it. <laughs> okay. So anyways, let us move on and talk about one more bit of uh, debunking. So apparently Tom Brady, yes, that Tom Brady, uh, is a notorious suggester of non-evidence-based uh, medical and uh, uh, nutrition advice advice and I had no idea. Um, not being a sports pan, fan per se, uh, it, he's usually a bit outside of my wheelhouse, but apparently he has a new book out and in it, amongst other bits of woo and pseudoscience, there is a paragraph that suggests he believes that drinking large quantities of water can prevent sunburns. Now, before we go on, there is a bit of interpretation here. So it may be that he does also use sunscreen, uh, but the way the item is phrased in the book would suggest that he does believe that being properly hydrated is all you need to save yourself from a nasty burn. And so the quote in question is this. When I was growing up and playing outside in the sun, I got sunburned a lot. I was a fair-skinned Irish boy, after all. These days, even if I get an adequate amount of sun, I won't get a sunburn, which I credit to the amount of water I drink. I always hydrate afterwards, too, to keep my skin from peeling. When I, t when I once told uh, that to my sister, she said, You mean I don't have to use all those moisturizers and facial products to keep my skin looking good? I should just drink as much water as you do? I think you should market your... Uh, water droplets uh, as a beauty product. I just laughed. Now, while I am a firm believer in hydration and carry a water bottle around with me most of the time, being hydrated cannot possibly prevent your skin from being damaged by the UV rays of the sun. Whew, that is definitely a thing that is not true. Um, and also there's some more interesting things he has to say about how different kinds of water are different. Um, water is basically water. It can have different trace minerals in it, but basically water is water is water. Um, it's like salt, uh, sea salt, uh, Himalayan sea salt, uh, table salt. They are all just salt. <laughs> Again, they can have different uh, trace amounts of things in them, but they're just salt. 
And apparently, uh, this book is filled with what is in large broad strokes, perfectly reasonable suggestions, but in detail suggests that, for instance, you need the products that he and his partner, Alex Guerrero, are selling in order to really do this the best way possible. Now, Guerrero apparently has a troubling past. Uh, the FTC once uh, uh, tangled with him when he was falsely claiming to be a doctor and selling products that he claimed could cure cancer, concussions, and a host of other illnesses. Now, this book is large on claims and short on actual evidence of any kind. For instance, in that totally real interaction, uh, he recalls from earlier, uh, note that his sister suggests marketing his supplement as a beauty product and further notice that there's no attempt to back up the claim with any kind of medical or scientific facts. Um, so overall, if you buy this book, I mean, go ahead, but it's, you really don't need much of what he is selling in it. Uh, by all means, like I said, the broad strokes of it are fine. Eat more veggies. Try and eat less salt, sugar, and fat. Stay hydrated. Be careful when you're working out and use proper stretching. Get eight hours of sleep if you possibly can. Um, but definitely don't think that you need pricey supplements or for instance, specific brain training programs, uh, which I have already debunked on this show before, in order to be healthy. Let Tom Brady stick to being a quarterback and leave the health advice to doctors and certified dietitians. And of course, do remember that water consumed too quickly in too great of a quantity can actually kill you. Um, so he says he drinks about two gallons of water a day. Please, please, please remember that he is an elite athlete. So he is sweating a lot and he's doing things that make that necessary. And he's doing it throughout the day. Um, if you drink large, large quantities of water, um, especially all at one go, you actually can get, um, uh, water narcosis and you can die. Um, it's, it is a very serious and real thing. So please don't do that. <laughs> okay. So let us move on now and talk about other more fun and interesting things. And of course, this is one of my favorite subjects, which is, uh, how basically ancient people are way cooler than a lot of people want to give them credit for. And this one's even more fun because it's another example of how women were doing a lot more in ancient times than they're often given credit for. And so, of course, we heard two weeks ago about that famous Viking burial that has been determined to uh, contain actually a female warrior rather than a male warrior, which I, again, find delightful. Um, and so it turns out that even further back in the Bronze Age, uh, Central European women were the main wanderers. And so they were most likely the main source of cultural melding and the spread of ideas. And so German archaeologists examined the remains of 84 people buried between 2500 and 1650 BCE in homestead cemeteries, um, which uh, would have contained between one and several dozen people who would have been buried over se several generations. Now, at this time, the area in question wouldn't have had large villages, so you wouldn't have a big cemetery. 
And they found that at this time, during the Late Stone and Early Bronze Ages, women tended to travel between 300 and 500 kilometers to establish families, while men tended to stay near home. The findings published in the journal PNAS uh, come from a research project headed by Professor Philip Stockhammer of Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich, And so Professor Stockhammer said, We all know these stories about warrior men out fighting and bringing home food while the women and children stayed at home, but it appears things were quite different. Our study suggests that almost none of the men had traveled, while two-thirds of the women had. In order to determine where the skeletons had originated, the researchers used stable isotope analysis as well as DNA and archaeological evidence. Professor Stockhammer again noted, We have three types of molars in our mouth, and they are mineralized at different ages. Every soil has a different signature, such as chalk or clay, and the water drunk from these different soils provides a different signature on the tooth, enabling us to have some indication of where they have been. And so it seems that there was a lot of mobility in Central Europe that lasted for some 800 years. Now, the focus of this particular study is the Lech Valley, uh, which is south of modern-day Ausberg, Germany. And so women from various ethnic backgrounds, uh, most likely from Bohemia and central Germany, moved into and settled down with locals in the valley. And what's really cool is that their burials suggest that the women were fully integrated over time. And, of course, this phenomenon is referred to... Uh, in keeping with how we refer to everything by men as patrilocal, um, which, of course, I find to be slightly sexist, but what are you going to do? Um, and so obviously that means that the, uh, the head of the household the, uh, um, is staying local. But anyways, uh, Dr. Alyssa Micknick of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History said, We see a great diversity of different female lineages, which would occur if over time many women relocated to the Lech Valley from somewhere else. And what's cool is that this time period also coincides with a large amount of cultural exchange and the promotion and development of new technologies. And so um, it means that these women were probably doing a lot more of that. And what also is interesting is that previously, a lot of this movement was considered to be migrations by groups of people, but it looks like it was more likely a form of individualized movements that may have been coordinated by certain cultural norms or needs. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Moving forward a hundred years in time, I wanted to bring you this delightful story of a newly discovered Roman mosaic in Boxford, England. And what's so amazing about this is that it's so unique that its authenticity was at first doubted. Quite frankly, when I first saw it, I thought it was a hoax because it was so unlike anything we had ev- that had ever turned up in this country, said Anthony Beeson, who was involved in the discovery. Beeson is a specialist of Roman art and architecture and a member of the board of the Association for Roman Archaeology. This amazing mosaic, which depicts the Greek mythological hero Belepharon, is believed to be from between 360 and 380 CE. 
Now, it's rare for a number of reasons, including the small nature of the villa in which it was installed. This was not a huge palace. That it has an inscription. That it contains figures rather than just geometric forms. And even more interestingly, because those figures actually extend beyond their borders. The corner figures extend outside their circular frames, as does a figure representing either Cupid or a season, which they suggest is either spring or summer, and a figure of Pegasus has a leg that stretches over its border as well. This is definitely unusual for Roman mosaics. You never find that in British mosaics, and you very, very rarely find it in any mosaic, Beeson explained. It's done by somebody who doesn't want to stick to the rules, which... I think, is its charm. Now, the mosaic would most likely have been in a room used for entertaining, obviously, and so there are two central stories being told, that of a king named Iobates uh, receiving Belepharon at court, and another of Belepharon slaying Chimera, a mythical beast that was part lion, goat, and part serpent. And so in slaying Chimera, Belepharon was said to make the seasons progress, as this monster is representative of winter. There's also a vignette of Hercules fighting a centaur, uh, which is, of course, uh, funny, because uh, he was actually the aggressor in that story, uh, having first stolen wine from the centaurs, according to the tale. Um, so, you know, he kind of had that one coming. But yeah, it's very cool. Um, but for now, the group has reburied the mosaic um, until they can raise the funds to uncover this whole uh, amazing piece of art. And so, yeah, that is super amazing and exciting. And um, I'm really looking forward to them being able to uncover the whole thing and seeing it, um, at least the pictures of it, uh, once they're able to do that and restore it um, to a nice um, state in which it can be preserved for another thousand years. Okay. Or 2000 years, I should say. Um, and so finally tonight, I want to talk about my favorite ocean dwelling animal, uh, which is the octopus. Uh, there are many, many animals in the ocean that I think are amazing. Um, but octopi or octopuses or, the octopus, um, however you choose to um, call them, I am definitely, they are definitely a favorite. And so you may have heard about this as well. And so basically, uh, they've been talking about how people have found this place that they are referring to as Octolantis. Um, and so it's an area of Jervis Bay off Eastern Australia, where a group of 15 gloomy octopuses, yes, that's the actual name, um, or one of their names, they're also called uh, Octopus Tetricus, and they are also known um, as the common Sydney octopus, um, but gloomy octopuses is definitely, um, I think, a fan favorite. Um, this place is where they're all congregating. And so they are communicating, living together, and even fighting over choice dens in this area. And of course, what's weird about this is that these octopuses 
are generally thought to be solitary creatures. Um, you know, we've always thought that octopuses basically keep themselves to themselves until they have to mate and then they meet together once and then that's it. Um, but it turns out that that is apparently not the case. So the international team of marine biologists led by Professor David Scheel of Alaska Pacific University filmed the creatures and published their study in the journal Marine and Freshwater Behavior and Physiology. And so the discovery was a surprise, Scheel told Quartz Magazine. Quote, These behaviors are the product of natural selection and may be remarkably similar to vertebrate complex social behaviors. This suggests suggests that when the right conditions occur, evolution may produce very similar outcomes in diverse groups of organisms, unquote. In other words, octopuses may be even more like us and other vertebrates uh, than we previously thought. Now, it turns out that this is not the first octopus congregation to have been found. In 2009, a nearby site called Octopolis was discovered. But it was thought to have been an anomaly. And so basically, uh, they figured the octopuses had fixated on a man-made object around 30 centimeters or around a foot, um, which protrudes from the seafloor and is heavily encrusted. And so having found a second grouping, the researchers have suggested a possible explanation. Stephanie Chancellor a study co-author and doctoral student in biological sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago, notes that both areas have several seafloor rock outcroppings, which, when combined with the buildup of the shells of clams and scallops being eaten by the octopuses, create an ideal area for dens in an otherwise flat and featureless area of seafloor. In addition, these middens of shell, quote, were further sculpted to create dens, making these octopuses true environmental engineers, she notes. And so that is very cool. Now, a few things. Uh, these aren't actually terribly idyllic surroundings. Uh, this is not a uh, utopia. Um, and so the males seem to spend a fair amount of their time chasing each other out of dens um, and just around, basically. Um, and of course, an abundance of animals in this way uh, can be attractive to predators like sharks. Um, so that's a problem as well. But it seems that the octopuses have clearly been doing this for a while, and we just hadn't yet figured it out. And so, um, most commonly, the gloomy octopus seems to den by itself, Sheil writes. Um, for these complex behaviors to occur, I think that they must encounter one another and interact regularly over generations. Even if, at any time, there are more octopuses living in a solitary life than interacting consistently throughout every day. And of course, that is very cool, but obviously we have to have a, uh, you know, disclaimer here that we really shouldn't try to directly compare this behavior to that of a human town or city or to humans at all. Um, it is a unique uh, behavior to these animals, and it's clear um, that these animals do spend a lot of time still being solitary, um, but definitely don't do it all the time. And, um, you know, octopi, octopuses, octopus, 
are still amazing enigmatic creatures that we will never fully understand i think and that is what makes them so wonderful however that means it is time for me to uh leave you for tonight um please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next and uh have a great evening <laughs>